Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. It is remarkable to consider the fact that 2,000 years later, we continue to proclaim the same kingdom that these apostles were sent out by Jesus to proclaim. We proclaim the same kingdom. We have the same mission and message that they had. The question is whether we have the same power that they had. We do proclaim the kingdom, but do we proclaim it with the power that they proclaimed it with? Because oftentimes it seems as if we lack that power. Yes, we're saying the same words. We're talking about the same things. But the message doesn't seem like it has the same power that it had then. Which leads us to ask ourselves, why? What happens? What do we need to do in order to recover that lost power? Have we lost it because we don't live the way that we should? I mean, how can ambassadors with feet of clay ever hope to have their message heard the way that it ought to be heard if their lives aren't right? How can they be taken seriously? Is it that we need some new measure, some new outpouring of the Holy Spirit to renew the power of the message? Perhaps over the course of time, it it has dissipated. And what we need to do is kind of get another dose of that apostolic power. When you find yourself asking questions like this, realize, first of all, that you're not alone, that many people today wonder about these same things. Why is it that it seems that we don't have the power that we once had? Also realize this, that we, uh, contemporary 21st century people, are also not alone in asking that question. Because the more you read in church history, going back centuries and centuries and millennia, you will find that in every generation, people ask themselves the same question. That all Christians constantly have been asking themselves, why does it seem that we don't have the power they had, and what must we do in order to recover it? As we consider the kind of power that Jesus sent his apostles out with and the mission that he sent them on, the question we have to ask ourselves is, like, what sort of power was that? What was its purpose? What was it meant to accomplish? Because it may be that the reason why we're always puzzling over this question of power is that we misunderstand the kind of power that they were given, what its purpose was, and what it was expected to do in the world. The apostles here are being sent out on a mission, yes, but specifically on a journey. Right? They're going to take to the road. They're going to be traveling. And in the instructions that we get here at the beginning of our discourse, this is a lot of travel instruction. This is a lot of Jesus preparing people for taking a trip, for going on a journey. He's addressing what you need to bring, uh, what you should pack, how you should prepare, where you should stay 
on your journey? These are all practical questions that we ask ourselves every time we go on a journey as well. It's helpful to think about the mission of the church, proclaiming the kingdom, as a kind of journey. If we do that, we can see that the sort of preparation that Jesus gives for the journey is not the kind you might expect. The apostles certainly don't get the preparation that they wanted, but they do get the preparation that they needed. As we consider the preparation that Jesus gives them, there are five lessons, five things that we're going to reflect on, that they're instructed right here at the outset. In our text, in your order of worship, the text is divided, even though this is a paragraph of text, it's divided into these five sections. You'll see it rendered in that way. Five pieces of our text corresponding to these five things that the apostles are learning, or at least should be learning, from the way that Jesus equips them. Five lessons from the first commission. The first is interesting. Lesson number one, the proclamation of the kingdom is part of an unfolding plan of God in history. And the in history part is important. When we read these words, we immediately apply them to ourselves, our moment in time. We put ourselves in the role of the apostles. But right up front, and their commissioning is something that definitely dates this moment. Although the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church is a great mystery revealed in the apostolic era, it hasn't happened yet. Right now, that's not what's going on. Jesus sends out the apostles, and he specifically tells them where they are meant to go and where they're not meant to go. They're not meant to go into the land of the Gentiles. They're not meant to go into Samaria. Instead, their harvest where they're being sent to go out and reap, they're being sent to what Jesus calls the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the twelve are being sent out to the descendants of the twelve. The twelve tribes being ministered to by the twelve apostles. This comes first. It must come first. In the prologue to John's Gospel, we read, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We see this being enacted here in Matthew 10. The apostles being sent out to his own people, and as some of these instructions suggest, they're not going to receive him the way that they should. But it is significant that in the founding of spiritual Israel, what comes first is a call to physical Israel to come into the kingdom, to join the Messiah here. Symbolically, the twelve apostles are being sent to bring in the harvest of the twelve tribes of Israel. This must come first. And it does. We see it happening here. And that helps orient us and remind us that God's plan of salvation unfolds over eras and epochs. 
but it has different characteristics at different times as he reveals more and more. The fullness that will arrive by the end of the apostolic age at its beginning is only hinted at. There's another message too. If you think about that long, what we might call diversity in the plan of God, the second lesson reminds us that there's a continuity that runs through it. The second lesson is that the apostolic message is the same as Christ's message, and it is verified with the same signs. If Jesus devotes a whole chapter to teaching you how to proclaim the kingdom, the kind of information you want is the how-to. Tell me what to say. Tell me how to respond when people object to what I say. Jesus gives us none of that. He's already given it in his own ministry. Here, all he says is, go out and basically say what I've been saying. Tell people the kingdom is at hand. Not only that, do what I've been doing. So the same signs that I've worked, which have testified to the authority of my message, now you will go out and work those same signs. So the twelve are being sent. They are apostles, which is messengers. They are ambassadors being sent by Jesus to say what he's been saying and to do what he's been doing. They have not been commissioned as independent teachers. Jesus has not raised up 12 men to establish independent teaching ministries, to kind of go from here, start where I started, but then kind of develop as you see fit. He's not raised up 12 prophets who are going to go out and fill in all the gaps, all the blanks that Jesus' ministry has left. Instead, he sends them out as representatives to repeat his words and to repeat his actions. There's a, a limit to this commissioning. Right? They are faithful in fulfilling it to the extent that they are repeating his message and proclaiming his kingdom. But to go beyond that and to preach their own message, to preach their own independent teaching or doctrine or revelation, that would be unfaithfulness on the part of these messengers. The apostolic message must be the same as Christ's message. And only then can it be attested by the same signs. All that, I think, is pretty self-evident to us by now. We're not surprised by that. That's the kind of commissioning we would expect from Jesus. But what he goes on to do in this third lesson is interesting. The apostles must depend on God's providence, not prior preparation. When he starts telling them how to prepare for the journey, it turns out the way to prepare is not to prepare, which is crazy. This is not the way we go on journeys. This is not the way we travel. The kind of advice that Jesus is giving is exactly the opposite of the advice that any of us would apply when it comes to doing something like this. And Jesus acknowledges that he's sending these men out, that they do have physical needs, and like laborers, they deserve their food. So those needs should be met. They deserve to have those needs taken care of. And yet, they cannot ask to have those needs met in advance. They cannot charge for the service that they will render. So, although they are deserving, and although their needs are real, 
Jesus, as it were, ties their hands behind their back and he, he forbids them to turn this mission into a business, a way of supporting themselves. Now, they can receive. They can receive whatever people give them and be sustained by it. But that's what must sustain them. Like, they can't charge. They can't work it out in advance. God's way of providing for them is through the generosity of the people that they serve. We know from Mark's gospel that they are permitted to take with them whatever they happen to have. So when they receive this commissioning, whatever they have, it's okay to take with them, but they can't ready themselves for the journey. It's like showing up to church one morning and I say, guess what, everybody? We're all going to take a road trip together. Awesome. We're going to go, I don't know, where could we go? Yellowstone. We're going to go to Yellowstone together. We're leaving right after the service. And you can take everything you brought to church this morning. I hope your shoes are comfortable. We'll be doing a lot of hiking. Uh, I'm sorry to say if you've worn heels, it's not going to work out really well. That's the idea. Like you're being sent on a journey, but you can't prepare for it. You can't choose the right outfit to take. You can't bring your spare cloak, your spare sandals. All of the extra support you might raise. Go to the bank and make a withdrawal so that you have some cash if you need it. Can't do that. You can't prepare in that way. You just have to go and trust that your needs will be met along the way. You have to rely on God's providence, not prior preparation. Why? Why would Jesus send them out on a mission like this without preparing them to make the mission successful? Why would he sabotage their efforts? Because they have to be dependent. He's sending them out in such a way that they must depend on him, that they cannot rely on their own resources, that they must learn to trust in God's provision. I imagine that at least for some of them, the most important thing that they learned during this season had nothing to do with with the miracles that they performed and everything to do with the fact that they didn't die that they still ate, that there was still a roof over their heads, that God provided for them even when they were not allowed to provide for themselves. They had to rely on the hospitality of those who were receptive. And yet there was a lesson here as well. The lesson was that ultimately it's God who judges who is worthy, not you. Right? They're, they're meant to go into a village and choose a, a person who's worthy and stay there. And you may ask yourself, how do I find out who's worthy? If I have to choose on that basis, there's no Yelp, there are no reviews, there's no way for me to evaluate who the worthy households are in town. I just have to use my best judgments. What makes them worthy? Is it how big their house is? Is it how affluent? Whether there's a a detached guest house, how good the cook's food is? Probably not. What makes them worthy is their receptiveness to the message of the kingdom. That hasn't changed. When we talk about receiving worthily, we mean receiving in faith. A worthy household is a household of faith. And the apostles stay where they're received, and they stay there regardless of what happens in the course of the ministry. So if things go well, 
and more people are receptive, they don't trade up. They don't start like getting to bigger and bigger locations, better and better households as their message grows in popularity. Wherever they start, that's where they stay, including the implication is if it turns out the people aren't as worthy as they had hoped. They're told that, that when you give your peace to the house, if the house is worthy, then, then it will receive that peace. But if not, if it's unworthy, then that peace will return to you. But you still stay there. You still live with those people. You don't decamp because it turns out the household wasn't up to your standards. As you think about that, you realize something. The focus here is not on the apostles, on their dignity or their comfort. It's not that they're, they're staying in a nice place or in, in like a, a, a properly dignified place. The emphasis is not on the merit of the people who receive them. The focus of their minds needs to be not taking care of themselves and not judging the people around them, but on proclaiming the kingdom, on doing the thing that they were called to do and not being distracted. In other words, in bringing in the harvest and not getting sidetracked. And when they encounter rejection, it's interesting how Jesus counsels them. This is the fifth And final lesson, but not the end of the sermon. Don't get excited. Um, When they encounter rejection, the apostles must move on. If they reject you, shake the dust off your sandals and keep going. That's the instruction. Don't get discouraged. Don't dwell on what a terrible experience that was and how I'm never going to go to that town again. That town was so unworthy. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. Also, he doesn't say, if they reject you, camp out, brother, because these people need to hear your anger. If they push back, this is where you need to center your ministry. You know, you need to use your iron to sharpen their iron or, or maybe lop off their heads. Shaking the dust off your sandals is interesting because this is what Jews were meant to do after traveling through Gentile lands. If they had traveled through Samaria, when they got to the other side, symbolically speaking, because of the uncleanness of traveling through that godless land, they would take off their sandals and they would shake the dust off. And that would be symbolically like a restoration of their cleanliness. We've walked through a godless place, but now we're back on God-fearing grounds. Think of the implication of Jesus saying that to them in this context as he sends them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he says that if a village in Israel rejects the message of the kingdom, you should shake off the dust the way you would in a godless place. The way you would in Gentile territory. Treating physical Israel as Gentiles. Soon enough, we'll be treating Gentiles as part of spiritual Israel. This explains the logic of why it would be worse for them to reject the kingdom than it would for Sodom and Gomorrah, because at least Sodom and Gomorrah could plead ignorance. They were not sons of the kingdom that was being proclaimed. These cannot plead ignorance. 
They reject the king despite the testimony of Moses and the prophets, despite the signs which accompany the proclamation. And thus the warning. But again, he doesn't say when they reject you, do like Jonah did. Make a little camp outside and wait for for the fire from heaven and enjoy. No, move on. Keep proclaiming. This is your message. This is your mission. Just keep doing your mission. Don't get caught up in the conflict. That's the commissioning to the apostles. As we put ourselves in their place, we need to realize that if we have the same mission, then we have the same calling. If we're meant to be proclaiming this kingdom, then surely we're meant to be doing it in the same way. Four ways that we can follow in the footsteps of the apostles on this journey. On this journey, you must proclaim his kingdom in his way, not your own. It's interesting that all the preparation of the 12 here is focused not on the message, but on the means of proclamation. It's already clear what we're meant to proclaim. Jesus has made that clear. Now the question is how to go about it. Right? What Jesus does in Matthew 10 is not give a strategy for proclamation. He gives an ethic of proclamation. How to live in the journey of proclaiming the kingdom. He's not telling us how to proclaim the kingdom effectively. He's telling us how to proclaim the kingdom faithfully. And there's a difference. It's not about results. It's about faithfulness. On this journey, to follow after the apostles, you must depend on God and not yourself. I know none of you would ever take a vacation following these instructions. When I went to Washington, D.C. last week, believe me, I prepared well in advance. I booked flights. I upgraded those flights when I was able to. I packed. Actually, no, I didn't pack. I've never packed in my life. I overpacked because I didn't know what I might need along the way. And so I imagined various scenarios, uh, various kinds of weather that might occur, various kinds of things that I might want to do. I I brought lots of different books, not knowing which ones I'd want to read. All of that just to be able to make a a journey of, of literally six hours. This is not the way we live in the kingdom, right? We don't book a place to stay in the destination, to make sure that we're comfortable and convenient. We don't anticipate everything that could go wrong and then plan ahead. We do this journey the way our parents and grandparents used to do road trips. When I was a kid, my parents decided on the spur of the moment, hey, we're going to Florida. And then we all packed into whatever vehicle we happened to have, which was way too small for those purposes, and drove towards Florida. We got there when we got there, and we found out you know, where we were going by asking people along the way. And, and we stayed at places people told us about or we saw from the highway were, were vacant. And that meant, at least on one epic occasion, we stayed in the vehicle on the side of the road all night long. That's a much more apostolic way of doing the journey. Depending on God's providence, that's the way. We're called as God's people to endure in this journey without all the preparation in advance, because ultimately none of that's really in our power. Just like it isn't when you plan your vacation, flights get canceled, 
right? They, they, they uh, get overbooked. You run into all sorts of problems. They lose your bags. The hotel loses your booking. And we freak out when this stuff happens. I was in the airport, and, and it was crazy. The little changes to people's itinerary, and they would melt down. And I, of course, judged them for it, but only because my itinerary didn't break down. I would have been in the same place. Those tiny little things, because it's loss of control. But God is saying, you don't have that kind of control. Only I do. None of this was ever in your power. That was an illusion. And so I don't want to send you out with an illusion of power. I'm going to send you out with the reality. And that means relying on me and on my providence. A corollary to that, on this journey, you must trust that unworthy people can be made worthy. Because God sends us out to proclaim the mission to a lot of people that that are unworthy. As the apostles go out, how can they know who will really welcome them? How can they know who will really be faithful and remain faithful? They can't know that. They're going to be spreading their peace over houses that don't deserve it. Like wasting it. They can't prejudge accurately. They're going to get it wrong. People are going to let them down. They're going to have to take blows and be rejected and not answer back. That's the reality that they've been called to. And that's the reality that you've been called to. All of those things are true for you as well. If you can trust in God to take care of your physical needs, then surely you can trust God to spark faith in the hearts of the faithless. If you can trust in Him to provide for you and your loved ones, then surely you can trust in Him to kindle hope in hopeless hearts so that that peace does not go out and be wasted. The harvest is urgent, but it's not desperate. Jesus isn't sending out harvesters on a hopeless task. He's sending them out with an expectation that they will bring in a harvest. This isn't a fatalistic mission. It's an optimistic one. And we should be God's hopeful optimists. Finally, on this journey... There are some things you don't have time for. On this journey, you do not have time for hate. One of my new favorite films, and I think I've talked about it before, is Akira Kurosawa's movie, Ikiru. Uh, Unlike a lot of his movies, this is not a samurai movie. Uh, This is set in the modern day. It's about a man, a government worker, who discovers that he doesn't have much time to live, and so he devotes himself to this public works project, this one little beautiful thing that he's going to do before he dies. And he meets enormous opposition. He's just trying to do a good thing, and it seems like everyone is against him, confounding his efforts. His assistants, who began as his opponents, but now have been won over, see the goodness of what he's doing. And as they see people oppose him, they get angry. They're mad at these people for standing in the way. And one of them says, you know, don't you just hate them? And the man turns to him and he says, I can't afford to hate people. I haven't got that kind of time. He's too focused on what he has to do to waste time on hate and anger. To waste time on on being discouraged by rejection. He has a mission to fulfill. 
And it's urgent. And he has hope that can be accomplished. You're in the same boat. You're going to face rejection, opposition, scorn, all sorts of setbacks. And you're going to be tempted to be discouraged and angry and want to fight back. People are going to belittle you. They're going to say that you're a fool to believe what you believe. And you're going to want to show them, no, you're the fool. You don't have time for it. You've got a harvest to bring in. You've got a mission to fulfill. You've got to shake off your sandals and move on and keep proclaiming. Keep proclaiming in hope. We don't have time for it, but we make time. We make time and then we justify it as a good thing. There were people who were wrong about stuff and I needed to correct them in the name of Jesus. I'm not saying there's no place for that, but we've been called to proclaim the kingdom. Let that be our focus. Let's not get caught up in all these side missions. But remember this, finally. The kingdom is proclaimed not just in words, but in lives. The men being sent out to proclaim the kingdom are being told how to live, not just what to say. And it's how they live that proclaims the presence of the kingdom among the people. It is what they see from the apostles that will testify to them that the kingdom is actually here. How did they know that the message was true? Because they had seen the life of Jesus. Because Jesus had lived the kingdom, not just spoken it. He was living this life of dependence upon the Father. He was living this life of focus on the proclamation. He was living the way that he was calling them to live. And so it made sense that they would not only repeat the message of Jesus, but do it by the means of Jesus. You've got to do Jesus' things in Jesus' ways. Just because you're doing what Jesus tells you to do doesn't mean you can do it any way you want. You have to do it as he would do it. All too often when people long for apostolic power, they long for power because they want to see results. They want to see things working. They want to see things growing. They want to see empires being built. That longing for power oftentimes is like every human longing for power, it's just been sanctified with a veneer of piety. But Jesus, in his preparation, is not preparing the apostles for the results. He is preparing them to be resilient. He is giving them unbelievable power and then telling them, oh, you're going to get rejected. Oh, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be persecuted. All the things we think power guards against. They had the power that we longed for, and they experienced the outcome we're hoping to avoid. Think about that, and it may change the way you think about this power. We tell ourselves, surely Jesus sending these men out intends that they're going to do big things for him. Yeah, that's true. But what is the big thing that Jesus expects them to do? He doesn't send them out to prevail. He doesn't send them out to win. The big thing is not to destroy their enemies. The big thing is not to empty out the synagogues, to topple the temple, to do any of the kind of stuff that we might imagine the proclamation of the kingdom might involve. 
The big thing is to endure. The big thing is to remain faithful. The big thing is, regardless of rejection, to keep going. That's the big thing that they've been called to do, and that is the big thing that we have been called to do as well. So when we ask ourselves, what kind of power is meant to accompany the proclamation of the kingdom, and how do I get that power? The reality is you have been given that power. You have that power. But it's not a protection against setbacks, failures, rejection, for you any more than it was for them. Instead, it's a power to do what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus calls his followers to be dependent, to rely on God's power to provide. And he gives us the power to depend and rely upon him. Jesus commands endurance. He calls us to run the race to the end faithfully, to rely on God's plan, even when it surpasses our understanding. Even when we cannot imagine why God would do things this way and not the way we would have done them, to endure. In other words, simply put, if you're going to proclaim the kingdom, you should start by living in it. If you're going to proclaim the kingdom, just start by living in it. Living the way Jesus lived, depending on the Father He depended on, enduring what He endured. And you will be following faithfully in the footsteps of the apostles. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.